Hello, it's Rob Moore here and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast, the live stream, the lockdown lives we should be calling these now. Uh, I want to thank you for joining this one. Now, this is a real pleasure for me. And I know I say that from time to time. Well, I say it a lot because I only pick guests who I feel like I've got some kind of affinity or connection with, even though they may not know it yet. But back in what, probably 2006, so we're talking 15 years ago, probably in the first 10 personal development or what you might call self-education genre of books I read was a book called 8020 Principle by Richard Koch. Uh, and I listened to it on audio as well. And I felt like he had a very warm, calming, authoritative, knowledgeable voice which helped the education. And I learned about the principle of 80-20, tried to disprove it everywhere, looking around, where is there 50-50? Couldn't disprove it. 80% of the baldness is in 20% of my hair. 80% of the results from 20% of the efforts, 80% of the the pleasure from 20% of the pursuits. And I was fascinated by this. So it feels very humbling. I feel very grateful. It feels like maybe some, a recognition of the growth of my own journey that I get to introduce to you the author of the wildly successful book, um, 8020 Principle and Coming Soon Unreasonable Success. So, Richard, thank you very much for being on the podcast and the live stream. Rob, it's a great pleasure. And I wish that everyone would give me such a very kind and <laughs> uh, positive introduction. Uh, but it's obviously, uh, you know, struck a chord with a lot of people. It's not so much but I'm a fantastic author or anything like that. It's just the power of this principle. Mm. And one of the things that I, I, you know, have based my life and my success to the extent I've had it is you've got to use principles. It's much easier if you use principles than if you don't. And, um, you know, not only the 80 20 principle, but in business, the star principle, which you may, may touch on as well, is just fantastically powerful. And if you can use it and, um, think about it uh, you can probably increase your success enormously and then there's this question of unreasonable success which we're going to come on to which in a way is a is a as a, a principle for remarkable success which we might talk about as well so anyway it's a great pleasure to be here thank you so there's so much i'd love to cover i want to get right into the meat of it so you're launching a book any minute now i believe uh, called unreasonable success and to me that's I think that's a fantastic title, Richard. It, it's, it, it's got some how-to element, but it's also got some mystique, makes me want to know more. So could you, whatever tangents you want to go on, and as long as you want to chat, talk us through what unreasonable success is and then how to create some unreasonable success in our own life or business. Great. And do interrupt me if I'm rabbiting on too much, <laughs> because uh, this is something which is very dear to my heart. Um, <clears throat> Unreasonable success. At the beginning of this book, I've got actually a dictionary definition. It's a fake dictionary definition, which I made up of what is unreasonable success, because this is a phrase that uh, I'm trying to make public and trying to make known. And uh, I've coined it, I suppose. And unreasonable success, Rob, really has four components. And I'm speaking without notes here, so I hope I can remember the four components. But the first one, which which you've already alluded to, is that it's such a a degree of remarkable success that an individual has. And this is about individual success. It's not about corporate success or team success or any of those, you know, very important things. It's about how people change the world. 
And so uh, the first point is that it's, you know, it's, it seems completely unreasonable. It certainly goes against a lot of the gestalt that there is politically and economically that, that everything's a team effort and all the rest of it. Well, that's true. But it's also true that individuals occasionally uh, can have remarkable success and change the world. But, and there is a big but here, the mystery, the mystique, which you referred to, resides in the other three definitions of unreasonable success. And one of those is that it doesn't exactly seem right that the success these people have comes to them, because in many ways, they are not as high performing, not, not even sometimes as competent, and not even as, um, you know, all round skill oriented, as many other people who are their peers. And these peers often fall by the wayside or they're reasonably successful, but they're not unreasonably successful. And what is it that actually makes these people very, very, very successful? In a sense, they don't deserve it. And that to me is, is kind of like the, the interesting part of this. And the, the third um, aspect of unreasonable success is that it comes from a series of experiences which the people have, to some extent attitudes, but how they react to particular circumstances and whether they have those particular circumstances. And in the book, there are nine of those, which I will go through. I call them landmarks because every one of the unreasonably successful people that I studied, and I should say that I took 20 people uh, from contemporary life and, and from history who actually have had uh, unreasonable success, as I define it. Um, they have actually, all of them, had these nine characteristics. Some of them are attitudes in responding to events. Some of them are personal strategies, which they somehow stumbled across. They didn't necessarily um, think it through. They didn't plan. But actually, these things happened to them. And one of the, the most um, amazing things when I researched the book was that all of these people who identified as being remarkably successful uh, had all of these nine different landmarks, which I will uh, touch on in a minute. And the last thing, which relates to the word reason, is that the, the, the individuals actually used intuition far more than reason. So it was unreasonable in the sense that it was intuitive and very often, clearly they had some help from, and in fact, in some cases, they, they acknowledge they had help from outside. One of the, one of the people, for example, is JK Rowling. Well, JK Rowling would tell you, I think, that she didn't invent Harry Potter. Harry Potter came to her when she was stuck on a train between Manchester and London, I think it was, mm -hmm. for four hours. The train had stalled and broken down and she had nothing to do. But suddenly in her mind's eye, she saw this sort of scrawny individual. She didn't know his name. All she knew was that he was on a train and he was going to a school for wizards. You know, that's bizarre. You know, I mean, you're stuck there. And she saw the other characters who feature in the book as well. And she didn't have a pen, she didn't have paper, but when she got back to London, she, she wrote it all down furiously. And it took her quite a while to actually write the first Harry Potter book. But it was almost as though that had come from, um, from outside her, an experience which many other uh, famous composers and writers like Tchaikovsky and Mozart and um, 
Coleridge, the poet and scientists and so forth, have often said that, 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 that they saw things in a dream or they came to them from the outside. Now, it's not, it's not necessarily true that everyone who's in the book had that, that kind of experience, but it is true that they all used their intuition. And intuition, as I'll come on and, and discuss perhaps, is not random. I mean, intuition uh, follows certain rules, I think, which we, can, which we can go through, which people may not be at all aware of, but nevertheless, um, it, it, was, um, it was important for them. So, you know, let me just name some of the other people who are in the book. Uh, there's Winston Churchill, uh, and he's very interesting because he was a failure through almost all of his life until Hitler came along and saved him. Uh, there, there's, uh, from the business world, Jeff Bezos, uh, the originator, obviously, of Amazon, and uh, Steve Jobs. And I've also got Bob Dylan in there, Madonna, for God's sake. Madonna's in the book. Uh, I'm not sure that she's necessarily like that, but she is. Uh, and uh, and then we have um, uh, perhaps more on the more spiritual side we have Paul the apostle or Paul of Tarsus as I call him, who also had the vision of the risen Christ on the way to uh, Damascus, which transformed him. Uh, and we have Lenin is in there, and uh, over quite a few other people that I'll come on and talk about. Nelson Mandela is uh, is one of the particular heroes of the book, I suppose, who perhaps did deserve what happened to him but but um anyway those are the 20 people and uh what i do is i i give a very brief summary of, of what they did to, in case people aren't aware of it Otto von bismarck he's another one he's the most successful european statesman of the 19th century who uh, united germany uh which used to be in the 1860s a combination of about 40 or 50 independent principalities and states um and very, very interesting man, because he followed uh, one of the paths, which is, which in fact is one of the uh, themes of the book, uh, which is a combination of iron determination and, in fact, complete dependence on events. He waited for events to play into his hands, and then he struck at the right moment. Um, so, um, yeah, I probably rabbited on enough the time being. That's all right, Richard. I'd love to come to those nine principles in a moment. I just want to let people know why Richard's camera isn't on because all you can see is my face nodding away. That's just because <laughs> um, Richard lives, uh, you live in Portugal, is that right, Richard? That's right. I live in the countryside in Portugal and unfortunately the internet here is not quite strong enough to support audio, uh, video. And if we videoed it, apart from the fact that I'm I'm quite old and uh, not, as, not as good looking as I used to be. Uh, <laughs> But the, the reason is that we don't want to interrupt the, uh, the transmission. And just um, before we come to the, those nine principles of unreasonable success, Richard, why do you live in Portugal? Why did you move there? Um, is there anything in that? Uh, actually, I live in Portugal for some of the year. I also live in Cape Town for some of the year. I'm, I'm increasingly uh, spending a bit of time in Australia each year as well. And uh, I also have a home in Spain. So, so the motif of all those places, can your listeners guess? Well, uh, or can you guess? What's, what is there in common between the south of Portugal, Cape Town, south of Spain, uh, and, and Australia? Oh, I reckon if someone puts this in the comments, they should get a prize, because that sounds hard to me. 
Um, I'll put you out of your uh, yeah, agony. It's very, it's very, very obvious when you when you hear it. Sunshine. <laughs> of course. Right. I am not. I'm not a sun lover. I'm a sun worshipper. <laughs> and uh, when I, I think when I was, um, I remember when I was, uh, I think it was 19. I actually was in Australia very briefly, and I saw. Uh, Actually, they, they were Kiwis rather than Australians walking past a, a man and a woman, a young man and a young woman, and uh, they had fantastic suntans. And I said to myself, that's what I want. That's what I want to do in my life. You know, I quite like to make some money. I quite like to do a few other things, but I actually want to enjoy the sunshine. And I, actually, I spend probably, um, well, as much as possible time outside. So, I, you know, I play tennis, I ride my bicycle, I take the dog for a walk and things like that. And uh, I just love being in the sun. It's mm. very superficial. Uh, yeah, I was, I was going for something deep and meaningful, but no, it's great. It's not spiritual, it's not financial, <laughs> it's sunshine. So actually, again, but in t before we come back to the, these nine elements of unreasonable success, because actually this is quite fascinating, um, if you travel between three and four different locations through the year, then clearly you are not tied to a desk or a city or an office. So were you ever and how did you make that leap? I wrote a book called Life Leverage, Richard, um, mm. which is essentially about creating a, a mobile, modern lifestyle of, of outsourcing and, and time and location freedom. You've clearly done that. Um, how did you make that move? Well, there are two answers. Two answers to that. The one answer is the, uh, I suppose, the approved answer, and then there's the perhaps not approved answer. Can we have both? <laughs> yes, absolutely. The the approved answer is that I I worked as a management consultant for um, for oh, probably about eighteen years, uh, and I was working very very hard when I was working as a management consultant, and and having worked you know, I don't know, 70 hours a week, probably working, you know, six days a week. Uh, for that period of time, I decided that that was enough and that I'd done enough hard work and that actually I was going to limit the amount of time that I worked to one hour a day. Now, I don't stick religiously to that. And the definition of work anyway is very fluid as far as I'm concerned. I do the things that I enjoy doing. But uh, work-wise, uh, I said... I made a decision basically uh, when I was in my late thirties that I would stop doing that. But of course, um, the the wherewithal to do that, and indeed to be able to you know, follow the sun around the world, uh, came from starting or being one of the co-founders of a consulting business called LEK. And LEK proved to be very successful. Uh, in the first six years, we grew about 100% each year in, in headcount, in revenues, in profits, and so on and so forth. And then I decided at that stage to get off that particular uh, uh, bus or that particular rat race, get out of that particular rat race, uh, and uh, you know, be do what I wanted to do, really. But the, the curious thing is, and the 80-20 principle very much supports this 80-20 principle being, as you mentioned, the book, but also something which I try and live by. Uh, the more you do just the things that are important to do, the more successful you may well be. Now, perhaps I've just been very lucky, but 
Right, it certainly worked for me. I only try and do things that I think will have some uh, impact on uh, how I think I want things to go or something I really enjoy. And uh, if you can get to that stage, then I think uh, you are probably not only going to be happier, but a lot more effective because you can take your time and think about what's important in your life and think about the things that you are uniquely qualified to do and and then just go ahead and do them. And then is that the unofficial answer? Is that different to that? Well, no, no, you've had both actually, Rob. Oh, okay. the, 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 let me just clarify that. The, the, the approved answer is I worked very hard and, you know, and then I decided to, to use the power of capital rather than the power of uh, labor. Uh, and the, the unapproved answer is that I'm lazy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? Lazy helps with leverage though, doesn't it? Oh, it does. I mean, yeah. I think being lazy is great because you can be very selective. Yes. I mean, there's, a, there's a story in the book about General von Manstein, who was uh, Hitler's, I mentioned Hitler, but who was Hitler's right hand, well, he was the top general. Actually, he despised Hitler as being a nasty little man, but, but he was responsible for all the blitzkrieg successes that the, that the armies had. And he, he said that there are four types of um, uh, general or four types of officer in the army. You know, there are firstly the um, the uh, good, hard-working people. He divided people into hard-working on the one hand and uh, successful on the other hand. So he said that, you know, you've got the hard-working guys who are, give all attention to detail, uh, but they are, um, they're basically uh, a stupid. And he said, that's fine. You know, there's a place for those people. They will never make good chief executives. They'll never make good heads of army, but they're good staff officers. Okay, and then you've got the guys who are uh, stupid and lazy. And he said, leave them alone. He didn't say fire them. He said, leave them alone. They don't do any harm. And then he said that there, there are people who are hardworking and stupid. And those people, he said, you've got to, you, no, sorry, hardworking and intelligent. So he said, those people make work for everyone and they've got to be fired immediately. <laughs> then there are the people who are intelligent, but lazy. And he said, these are the people who are destined for the highest office. And the reason that they're destined for the highest office is that they will find ways of doing things with relatively little effort and, they, and relatively little resource. And therefore, by being very selective, they are allowed to be lazy. Uh, but and, and if you're going to be lazy, you have to be very, very careful in how you use whatever talent or whatever resources you have available to you. And that strikes me as very true. I sometimes think that chief executives shouldn't be allowed to work more than three days a week. Was <laughs> <laughs> it Bill Gates that said, if you want to get something done, give it to a lazy person? I don't know who said it originally, but I'm sure yeah. Bill said it and lots of other people say it. And I yeah. think it's, it's true, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. yeah, because it, I suppose what it does is challenges your thought process, because this is an interesting topic, Richard, because I was raised by hardworking parents um, and my parents instilled hard work in me. And I certainly certainly since this lockdown, I've put on I've rolled up my sleeves and worked hard to navigate my companies through this challenging time. 
Um, but sometimes when you work hard, you try and do everything. And so you don't understand that no two tasks have the same value. Um, you know, one task might have a £10 value, one task might have a £100,000 value, or one task might take 10 hours but not give you much benefit, and one task might take an hour and give you more benefit than the other nine tasks beneath them. And if you just work hard, you don't stop to think about how no two tasks have the same value. No, that's, that's absolutely right, Rob. And when I was working in Bain & Company, Bain & Company was a very unusual consulting organisation which taught me most of what I learned about just about everything. Um, they had a theory which was great for the people who were the vice presidents, the partners of the firm. And the theory was that you should never, ever do anything that a lower cost resource, i.e. a person, uh, mm. could do. And you should delegate. Now, this meant that you never had to go and buy your own sandwiches at lunchtime, for example. <laughs> Someone would go and buy. So effectively, they, it, it was a system whereby you know, the top people actually only, either they thought deeply about the issues of a particular client or they were talking to the top person in the organization about things. Yeah. That's all, that's all that they did. Um, and it's just amazing once you've once you've once you've had that ability to delegate things to people who are intelligent and and, and highly motivated but just younger or less experienced than you you know you want to replicate that experience because it's wonderful it's absolutely wonderful you just don't do the bottom 80 percent of whatever needs doing you just concentrate on the on the on the top things yeah. Of course, if you ever stop working in an organisation, you find that you have to do something. You have to make your own cup of coffee and stuff like that. <laughs> so, uh, so that's a, a bit of a trade-off because actually managing people is is uh, is sometimes a bit of a pain as well. So, so life, as always, has its uh, trade-offs. Yeah. But maybe we should get back to the unreasonable success and just talk a little bit about about some of the strange landmarks that these people visited because they're not conventional at all yeah you said there were nine was it nine elements of unreasonably successful people yeah, nine landmarks rob that's right yeah let's just take a couple of those shall we as, as okay. illustrations one of them is that each of the people uh, who were unreasonably successful each of the 20 people in the book actually went through an experience which changed them i call it transforming experience and these experiences could be very different. It could be something that lasted a day. It could be something that lasted for a few years. But they were different when they came out of that experience than they were before. They were almost infinitely more powerful. And one of the interesting things is that these people didn't decide to have a transforming experience. You know, they actually went through something which transformed them. And it's only in retrospect as... as, as uh, uh, who was a Danish philosopher and theologian from the 19th century? He, he said something to, to, to things. We have to live life forward, but it only makes sense when you look backwards. Um, his first name was Soren. What was the last name? Yeah, that's, this, this is one for your listeners and the rest of it. But anyway, the, the point about the transforming experiences is that they were very, very different, but they had to have them. And so therefore, if you're listening to this, or if you're reading a book, or if you're just thinking about your own uh, uh, trajectory in life, one of the questions which I ask everyone is, have you had a transforming experience? Has there been an occasion in which, because you had this experience, you came out of it much more powerful, 
than you went into it. And some of these experiences were very unpleasant. And it's quite interesting. I mean, let's just take a few examples. Lenin. Lenin had a, a beloved elder brother who was a wonderful guy. Everybody loved him. And he was a couple of years older than, um, than Lenin when he was a kid. And I think he was 18 or 19 years old. When, when something happened which transformed Lenin's world when he was, I think, 16 or 17. And it was the hanging of this elder brother, because unbeknown to the whole family, Lenin's family, uh, they had in their in their midst a terrorist. And uh, this beloved elder brother, who everyone thought was wonderful, and indeed he was wonderful, uh, was plotting to murder uh, Tsar uh, Nicholas Alexander III. Yeah. So basically, he was caught, and he was taken to uh, fortress, and he was hanged, and it was very, very uh, dramatic. I think this is my great uh, episode or, or clip, anyway, in a documentary. But he, there were five of them, and they only had three gibbets. So two of them had to wait and see their colleagues actually hanged and die before they could actually go through the same experience. And Lenin's elder brother was actually the last one to, um, to be hanged. And he calmly um, kissed the, the cross, which the priest gave him, and then went with great fortitude to die. Lenin was totally transformed from that experience, from being an industrious student. He became a revolutionary or secret revolutionary anyway, almost overnight. And if it had not been for that experience, he would not have been fueled by hatred of the czars and their hangers-on. Um, and uh, that was, you know, basically Lenin, and indeed, the, you know, if Lenin hadn't had that experience, um, the whole of the 20th century history would have been very much happier, probably. Can I uh, just jump in here, Richard, just quickly, because this is fascinating, but I have to ask this question. What if someone feels they've not had such a transformational event? Does that um, disqualify them from unreasonable success? Yes, it does, Rob. But the point is that you can engineer your own unreasonable uh, success. Let me let me give a, in business um, a happier and more typical example. Sure. Which is that every single person that in business was a great success either had a transforming experience in their own company or more usually they had a transforming experience in another company beforehand and this happened to me when i mentioned Bain and company earlier and indeed the boston consulting group was very important to me and in preparing me for what i did but uh bezos jeff bezos richest man in the world okay so he invented amazon right everybody knows he invented amazon uh, and that's been huge success. His formula is wonderful, you know, unbeatable prices, great customer service, and all that stuff. Um, now, not many people realise that Bezos actually worked for a company before he worked for, before he founded rather Amazon. And this was a company called D.E. Shaw and Company, which was a quantitative um, investment house, alternative investment house, run by a professor of finance called David Shaw. He set up the company about 1990, and Bezos joined the company, I think 1992 or something like that. And um, Bezos at the time was 26 years old. 
He was disgusted with working on Wall Street. He hated the characters there with their pink shirts and their and their suits and their superior attitudes and, and all the rest of it. He hated the idea that the only important thing in life was making money. He hated the idea that you screwed everyone in order to uh, to make a buck and all the rest of it. Of course, that was a bit of a caricature of what was going on on Wall Street, but it had some elements of truth there. And certainly it had elements of truth as far as Bezos was concerned. And a headhunter said to him when he was 26, you know, you want to get out of Wall Street, but there is this odd Wall Street company that you should go and see. Go and meet David Shaw. And it wasn't a typical Wall Street company at all. In fact, it wasn't based in Wall Street. It was based in the village, in the East Village, uh, Greenwich Village. And it was on top of a Marxist bookshop. And people didn't turn up in suits and ties and all the rest of it. They turned up in jeans or shorts and t-shirts uh, but it was highly quantitative david shaw you know was was a, a a great evangelist and one of the things that he noted in the early 1990s was that the internet was going to transform business that was that was his belief it wasn't a belief that was very common at that time um, he registered his url uh, three years before goldman sachs registered theirs four years before Morgan Stanley um, got theirs as well. And he said, everything is going to be sold over the internet. And when uh, Bezos joined D.E. Shaw and Company, he and David Shaw formed a very important personal link. They were very close friends. They were, they were very similar sort of characters. You know, they were off the, off the scale bright. They were nerdy. And they, you know, were extremely opinionated. And they got on like a house on fire. And uh, David Shaw asked Bezos to uh, work on a project which he devised, which he called the Everything Store. And the idea was that you would sell everything on the internet. Uh, and, you know, it, it's basically what Amazon became. And, you know, it's, I'm not saying that Bezos didn't have a lot of input to that because it was his project and he and David worked on it together. It's impossible to tell who actually worked out what. But they did things, for example, like work out what was going to be the first category of goods that they would sell. And they decided that that was books and there are particular reasons that which we won't go into. But, 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 you know, it was that ready, you know, as, as uh, Boris Johnson might say, oven ready, uh, you know, to just stick it in the microwave and you know, go and do it. And that was, um, that's, that's what Jeff Bezos did. He, um, David Shaw wanted Bezos to be the head of the company, but he wanted him to do it within the Shaw and Company. And Bezos said, no, I actually want to be my own boss. You know, I actually want to do this myself. And uh, David Shaw walked Bezos round, as the story goes, Central Park for a couple of hours, trying to persuade him to change his mind. He didn't, he was not successful at doing it. Bezos said, I want to do it, I'll start it in my garage. Uh, and David Shaw, quite remarkably and very, very generously, said, Okay, go and do it. No, he didn't say, I'll sue you. He didn't say, I want a share of the company or anything like that. Uh, and so the rest is history. You know. But if Bezos had not gone to that headhunter in 1990 or 1992 uh, if he had not been told to go and see david shaw if he had not gone on like a house on fire with david shaw 
you know, we'd never heard of Jeff Bezos, and he would have been the richest person in the world. It was a transforming experience for him. And, and similarly, you know, if you take Steve Jobs, he saw the future of computing. It was a, it was a stunning moment that he saw the future of com computing happen, I think, in 1981, etc. And it wasn't Apple. It was actually at the Xerox Laboratories in California where he managed to finagle uh, getting in to see them because uh, he said that Apple could take an investment in this particular uh, unit of Xerox. So it was Xerox Park that he visited. And they'd worked out how to do everything with the computer that we now take for granted, like smooth scrolling and uh, putting files on the desktop, you know, there's no such thing as a desktop beforehand. It was invented by the uh, boffins at, at Xerox Park. And when he left that meeting and drove back to his headquarters with his colleagues in the car, uh, Steve Dobbs was driving. He said, this is it. This is it. This is the future. This is the future of, of computing. And you know, and everyone in the car obviously agreed, you know, you agree with the boss, but they, they'd seen it, you know, that was the thing that transformed them. And they did it much better than Xerox would ever have done it much. They, did, they built a machine which is much lower cost, much lower price, and actually better. But they, if they had not seen that it had been done, they would not have known how to do it. Mm. And, uh, you know, that was a transforming experience of, of Steve Jobs, and so on and so forth. You know, there it's if you if you look at any successful person, it's odds on that they will have worked for a company, and then they took the idea, and they probably tweaked it in a in a quite different way, but they felt that they could do it, and so therefore I say to your listeners, if you've never had that experience, it's the most wonderful experience you could possibly have. Work out which area you want to focus on, work out which area you think you have got the greatest talent in. And then go and work for a company, which is easy to find because it's growing very fast. It's growing very fast because it knows something that no other firm knows. Go and work there and then do your own thing afterwards. It's, mm. it's almost a fail-safe uh, formula for success. And, and it's easy to do because these firms are conspicuous, if you look carefully, because they're growing very, very fast. Any firm that's growing very, very fast is, is quite likely to be in a new area of knowledge where things are being discovered every day. And it's quite likely to be very successful because yeah. you don't grow fast without money and you don't, you know, people who've got money don't give it to firms just for the hell of it. So, so it's easy to do, uh, but, but people don't do it. And so, you know, I mean, that's, that's one of the most hopeful things that can happen. Sometimes the transforming experience is, 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 is also, you know, a threat. And if the threat becomes an opportunity, the classic example of this is Margaret Thatcher. People don't realize it now, but Margaret Thatcher in her first two and a half years as prime minister between 1979 and 1982 was a hopeless failure, a hopeless failure. She, she was a great fan of Winston Churchill, which is funny because he was a great failure through most of his career as well. Uh, and, you know, inflation, you know, was 15%, 20% or whatever. Unemployment, you remember that such and such you had labour isn't working, it's a picture of a dull queue, allegedly a dull queue, not really a dull queue, on the advertisements for the 1979 general election. 
you know, that was when unemployment was 700,000. By 1982, unemployment was 1.5 million, you know, and going up. And, um, you know, not only that, but the Social Democratic Party formed by uh, the Gang of Four, led by Roy Jenkins, had actually started to win three by-elections in rock-solid Tory seats. And it looked likely that, that uh, Jenkins would become the next prime minister at, at the general election, which had to be held the following year. And Mrs. Thatcher was loathed by the majority of people in her cabinet. They were Ted his people. And she got rid of Ted, you know, and, and she was a loony right winger, according to those people. And not only that, she was a woman, you know, and, and you know, I mean, William, William Whitelaw, who became a, a, quite a loyal left, lieutenant to her after the Falklands War, you know, dismissed her as being governessly, governessly, meaning that she was lower class, lower middle class, and she was female. And what the hell was she doing running, running the country? Well, when the Falklands came along, Mrs. Thatcher said, when, when uh, President Gautierre invaded the Falkland Islands in, in 1982, uh, she said it was the worst moment of her life. But then she decided that it was possible to possibly reclaim the islands. And she, she authorized the task force, which actually went and did that. The US Navy said it was a military impossibility for that to happen. Even her dear friend Ron, Ronald Reagan, you know, tried to persuade her to accept that, that this has happened and there was nothing you could do. And anyway, it was only a couple of hundred thousand people. They were out 8,000 miles away from Britain, close to Argentina, you know. Uh, but Mrs. Thatcher said, no, we're gonna, we're gonna get back these islands. If she'd been a man, she wouldn't have done it because she'd have known that war is really tricky. I mean, a lot of people in her cabinet had thought at the end of the Second World War, and they knew that, you know, no plan survives contact with the enemy and all the rest of it. Uh, you know, things can be very, very unsuccessful. She was jolly lucky, you know, somehow it worked. And she managed to hold on for the six weeks it took the task force to arrive and not to agree with President of the United States that she should actually give way diplomatically. Once the Falklands had been reclaimed, through her bravery and the bravery of the people who did it, obviously, the British troops, uh, she was totally transformed and her position was impregnable. And these people in the cabinet who had been uh, quite uh, dismissive of her and, and planning to, plotting to get rid of her, actually then fell into line and she then did the privatization, the sale of council houses and all the rest of it. It's true that the transforming experience had its bad side as well because it made her very arrogant. And in the end, she thought the poll tax was a new, uh, was, was a new uh, example of where everyone else was wrong and she was right. Well, it didn't prove to be the case. But for, you know, she would not have had the impact on Britain that she did, good and bad, in the middle and late 1980s, if she had not had that transforming experience of Falklands. If Falklands had not happened, she'd have been thrown out of office, either by her colleagues before the election or by the, the electorate in 1983. So another example of something that happens to people. The theme in this is that they become, one way or another, 
very powerful, either because they know what to do and they see an opportunity that no one else does, or because they've had this experience which convinces them that they're Superman or Superwoman and all the rest of it, which is always a delusion, but it's an incredibly useful and powerful delusion. Mm. Uh, as, as, as Steve Jobs or the Apple commercial said, you know, the people who change the world are the people who are crazy enough to believe that they can. Yeah. One, one of the other of these nine um, landmarks is self-belief. And, you know, self that's obvious in a way. You've really got to believe that you can change the world before you do. The vast majority of people don't believe that they can change the world, and therefore they don't. Mm. Uh, but the interesting thing to me, Rob, is not knowing that self-belief is important, because that's not, you know, that's not terribly original. The key is how do you get self-belief? And I discuss this in the book. You know, the, the way to get self-belief is actually to focus on an area where you are in, you know, and again, this isn't original, it's where you actually are ideally suited to do it and to become equipped by having a transforming experience. And 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 there are a few other things as well which are very important. But those are the the sort of things that are, that, that are very important. The, the other landmark I'd just like to focus on, because I think it's very encouraging for everyone, is um, you, you have to learn to thrive on setbacks. And again, Churchill is probably the best illustration. Is Churchill, in the Second World War, sorry, in the First World War, uh, had two terrible, terrible strategic failures, which caused the deaths of a large number of British troops. One was when he took an, uh, an untrained army to try and stop the Germans from taking Antwerp and therefore then taking all the other ports along the North Sea in France and, and Belgium. Uh, and that was a complete failure. He was previously the head of the Navy and he had to resign as a result of, of the fiasco it took five days for the Germans to uh, defeat this army, which in effect was um, Churchill's private army to be cobbled up. And then in 1917, there was the incident called Gallipoli or the Dardanelles, which was a quite a creative idea to get rid of what, you know, Churchill said was, you know, chewing barbed wire on the Western Front and to go into uh, Turkey and that part of the country and then basically work your way westward from that. Well, you know, it was a harebrained scheme. It didn't succeed and there were a huge number of casualties as a result of that. Uh, so that was a great failure. In the general strike of 1926, uh, he basically provoked the miners into uh, a strike, which was a, 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 a tremendously negative experience for the economy, uh, I mean, it had the same sort of impact on the economy as um, as indeed the virus is having today. You know, G GDP went down a huge amount. Um, and he also, the year before that, took Britain off the gold standard as Chancellor of the Exchequer at a ridiculously high pre-First World War level of $4 to the pound. And that was a, a disaster. In the 1930s, he resisted a measure of um, quite a mild measure of self-government for India. He had a seven-year campaign against this thing. He thought Gandhi wasn't as bad as Hitler, but he was getting on that way. I mean, it, it, it was ridiculous. He was isolated. He was drinking heavily, even by his liberal standards. I do like, though, his 
uh, aphorism, which uh, I've taken more out of alcohol than it has taken out of me, uh, which was probably true. But nevertheless, he was in a bad way, washed up, isolated. No one thought that he was fit for high office. But he actually got one thing right, which was the belief that Hitler was a menace to the world. He came up with that belief in 1932 before Hitler had managed to work his way into the chancellor's office. And, you know, basically, uh, he kept saying, we cannot allow Germany to rearm. Don't trust Mr. Hitler. You know, he says he has no more territorial ambitions after marching troops into the Rhineland. Don't believe him. It's not true. Everyone else went to speak to him and said Hitler's a wonderful guy. You know, the leader of the Labour Party, Lansbury, was delighted to discover that Hitler was vegetarian and that he was kind to dogs and therefore, you know, Hitler was no threat and so on and so forth. All the great and good, were, you know, went to go and see Hitler and said, you know, you don't want to take any notice of what he said in Mein Kampf. That was just, you know, bullshit, you know, and uh, he was just playing to the gallery on that. You know, this man's perfectly reasonable. Neville Chamberlain, who saw him in uh, Munich in 1938, the first time that Chamberlain had ever been on an airplane uh, to go and see Hitler in Munich. What did he say about Hitler? He didn't say that he was an extremist. He didn't say that he was a lunatic. He didn't say that he was dangerous and, and all the rest of it. He said, I found Herr Hitler entirely undistinguished. Entirely undistinguished. Um, uh, you know, there, he was a common man. And, you know, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but he, he did say entirely undistinguished. You know, he, he, he was not the sort of man that you'd invite to into your cabinet or to a dinner party, but you could trust his word. You know, that's what, that's what Chamberlain said, the Prime Minister of, of Britain. You know, and we all know where that led. You know, but one person who had actually said, we can't trust Hitler, this is going to end in tears and all the rest of it, was Churchill, the only person who believed that he could rally the British and the world to defeat Hitler was Churchill. And so therefore, in May 1940, he had to be made Prime Minister. There was no choice when it was clear that Neville Chamberlain was going to die soon. Uh, and, you know, he wasn't the first choice of the Conservative Party or the King or anybody. The organised Labour was still very suspicious. The Labour Party were very suspicious of him. But he knew what he wanted to do. And he uh, had had this ability to thrive on setbacks. And all of the characters that I, I uh, uh, looked into actually had at least one major failure in life. And... The, the peculiar thing was that they were not downcast by that. In fact, it wasn't a question of being resilient. It was more a question of being what uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb calls anti-fragile, of actually liking, in a way, their failures, because it meant that they were important in some sense. Okay, they failed, but they tried to do something very ambitious, or maybe they had good reasons for failing, which didn't reflect badly on them. You know, people can rationalise almost anything. Uh, but it is very important to have failures, but mm. to have an attitude to them, which says the more failures I have, the better, because that means I'm going to have a big success. Sure. And historically, that's actually quite accurate. It's it's ridiculous, but it is accurate. I'm sorry, I'd better stop there because I'm, that's all right. I'm sitting here listening. Um, <laughs> so what I'd like to do now, uh, um, Richard, because I think this will um, keep uh, a, a nice. Um, element to the interview is I've got about 10 questions left if we could do one minute on each so more okay. maybe a bit, a bit of a quick fire 
No, uh, I don't. I don't know the question, so I might. I might say, "Ooh, um, ah, all right." Go ahead. You you can decline them, or I'll just jump in after a minute. So yeah, first I'll, one. I'll, yeah. 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 Okay. First one is. Um, is there any way, maybe one or two ways, we could adapt the 80-20 principle for the lockdown? Um, you know, the modern view of 80-20 principle so we can you know, survive and thrive through this um, very unprecedented time. I think it's a bigger opportunity, actually. I mean, I think it's proved that the frenetic pace of life and having loads of meetings are not necessary. Mm. So you've, if you just focus on the key things in your life and, and your work, then, um, you know, what is it that makes you happy? What can you do which is going to be most useful to other people? And in business, how, you know, you might think, well, can you use the 80-20 principle and the star principle? We haven't talked about the star principle, but basically the idea that all successful, very successful companies are in high growth markets and they become or are the market leader, preferably the dominant market leader. Just ask yourself those questions because it's a great opportunity to think about life and it's a great opportunity to think about your business and your success. Hmm. So, you know, the fact that you're not able to do a lot of things is a, a blessing in disguise in many ways. As, yeah, long as, as long as you live, of course, which is quite important. As well. Of course, yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's a very good point. A lot of the things that we probably held as important but weren't or urgent, but they were other people's urgencies. Um, I think the, the universe has taken those all off of us or a lot of them. So I think that's a great point. Um, next then is... How do you build intuition and trust your own intuition? You talked about that earlier, um, right at the start. So in one minute or less, how do you build and trust your own intuition? There are two ways to do it, Rob, which I think are, are very powerful. One is you have to specialise in an area of knowledge because intuition, as I said earlier, isn't random. You know, it may seem that, you know, it's very nice to get... Uh, you know, a, a huge insight and all the rest of it. But your insights can be wrong as well as right. If you know a great deal about an area, you remember uh, Albert Einstein. Before anybody had heard of Albert Einstein, he decided to specialise in this area of the question of, you know, uh, is there anything absolute about time? And all of the physics related to that, which was very exciting, high growth er area, which, you know, people like uh, Leonard and, and um, several other physicists were making huge steps forward at the time. Um, you know, specialise in that and acquire, you know, very, very deep knowledge in a very narrow area. That's the first thing. And the second thing to do is to train yourself to use your unconscious mind. Because the unconscious mind, as Matthew Walker in his book, Why We Sleep, a neuroscientist has discovered, is tremendously, tries to help people. You know, you have to basically believe that, that, that it will help. You have to do the right things to enable the unconscious mind to work. And if you just want to read one book to tell you how to do it, Matthew Walker, Why We Sleep is a, is a good book to have. But training your unconscious mind to come up with ideas is possible. I've done it for years. Uh, and you wake up in the middle of the night sometimes. It does interrupt your sleep, it's true. And you've got the answer. It's all worked out. You know, and you haven't done it. You know, it's either it's if you if if you're a believer, for example, you may believe it comes supernaturally. If you're not, you say it's just a function of the body and the evolution and the rest of it. But there's no doubt that being open to the insights that can come to you when you're sleeping, or sometimes when you're daydreaming during the day, or shaving, or you know you're you're doing a bit of exercise that's not too demanding. You know, 
you've got to cultivate those moments and let the unconscious mind tell you what to do. Thank you, Richard. Why are you doing that? I just went on and ordered all your books I don't have on Audible, just to remind <laughs> myself. Um, and we'll mention them in a moment. Okay, so what's the best advice you can remember you've ever received? Uh, you need a failure. I remember in, uh, when I was in my 20s, uh, I can't remember who it was, but I was really dumbfounded by this. I, I'd always tried to pretend that I'd been very successful at everything, as most young people do most ambitious young people anyway and uh and this guy said to me richard the trouble with you is that you've never had a failure go and go and have yourself a failure and and shortly afterwards i did not through not deliberately <laughs> but, but when it came along i thought oh, maybe it's not such a bad thing after all hmm. and what's the worst advice you can remember you've ever received uh the worst advice i've ever received was to work hard <laughs> a lot of people gave me that advice and I followed it for far too long. Okay. Uh, is there one thing in the world that you think is wrong that you'd quite like to change? This sounds really, this sounds really uh, soppy, but it's not. You know, I think happiness is available to people, very, very clearly available. But to, to, to get happiness, you have to surrender. You have to be willing to bend with events. And one of the things that, that Bismarck said that I, I found enormously useful is man does not create the current of events. All he can do is uh, respond to them and steer or something like that. So steer, you know, uh, you know think of yourself being in a canoe or whatever. Um, <clears throat> so um, if, you, if you go with the flow and, and don't try and control things, and if you, you know, but are very receptive to opportunity that comes along, uh, then I think you can be uh, successful. But I think it's also in personal relationships as well. I mean, I, I don't want to preach this because I'm not particularly great myself, but, but you know, it's very important that you uh, don't overexercise your ego and that you are willing to surrender, you know, to, to bend. And that's the way to be happy. Mm. Okay. Thank you. Um, this is from Victoria Ray. She wants to know your favourite book of all time. Yeah, people often ask me this. Um, and I never really can give a very, a very, um, a very good answer. I mean, there are several books. That have, which, I mean, one of the most recent ones is The Creative Brain uh, by a woman called uh, Nancy Andreessen. And she, she goes and she discusses how great people have often had these experiences of getting stuff from the unconscious mind. And that's a very powerful book. Um, Thomas S. Kuhn wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And that, seemed, that was over 50 years ago. And it may seem a pretty odd thing to recommend. But, but if you're at all interested in uh, discovering something that nobody else has discovered, I think you should read this book, The Structure of Scientific Re uh, Revolutions. Thank you. I just quickly searched those while I was like a good book. Uh, okay, uh, what have we got next then? Um, what's your definition of success and is it in the mind? A one minute answer on this from Sharon Griffiths. Uh, success is having the impact on the world that you want to have. So it might be good or bad. I mean, Lenin was successful in uh, 
you know, taking over from the czars and having his little clique uh, rule Russia, Russia for what was it, 50 years. Um, so it's it's doing what you want to having an impact on the world that you want to have. And the second half of the question, sorry, I've forgotten. And she, do you think that success is in the mind? Oh, of course. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, it's in the mind, but it's also in external events, which you then respond to. But um, it's absolutely in the mind, yes. Okay, thank you. So there's a question that goes around a lot of podcasts, which I've re reversed, so trying to be a bit disruptive. Um, and a lot of people ask on podcasts, what advice would you give your younger self, your 25-year-old self, for example? Yeah. I'm going to reverse it and ask you, what advice would you give your older self, maybe your 80 or 90-year-old self? I would say uh, try and have another breakthrough achievement. Try and do something incredibly ambitious. I look forward to seeing what that is. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> okay, I've got uh, two more. So um, on the research on the net, now I'm not one when I do my interviews really to talk too much about money in the sense of individual's net worth. Um, I sometimes dare myself to ask questions that are a bit brazen and a bit cheeky. I asked Robin Sharma what his net worth was and he, he very, um, in a Zen-like fashion, rebuffed the question. But if you research online, there's a lot to say you're worth 100 million. And there's a lot to say you do, you've done some quite big investments in some quite big companies. I just would like you to just share for a minute, um, you know, is that true and do you invest and is money important to you? Uh, the Sunday Times Rich List last year said that I had um, net worth of £445 million, I think. Right. And that put me some in ridiculously high in the, in the UK. Not that I'm really in the UK, but... But anyway, uh, it put me at number 300 or something like that. Above the Queen, which I thought was very funny. And obviously, it's, it's not true. She's far wealthier than I am. They got that one wrong. But, but um, yes, money is quite important, actually. I think it's too important to me. But I, I can't help it. I mean, when I was nine years old, um, a rather imperious friend of mine, an auntie of mine, asked me, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a millionaire. And she tutted and said, that's ridiculous. You'll never become a millionaire. And anyway, it's not a job. Now, what job do you want? You know, <laughs> and I didn't really want to become a millionaire. It's just the first thing I blurted out when this woman, Miss Gates, was her name, you know, asked me the question. But it sort of focused me in a way of making money. And I think it's a great game. I love the game. You know, I love board games. Mm. And I, I used to like Monopoly until you worked out how boring it was, actually. All you had needed to do was get Park Lane and Mayfair and then you quit. But, what, but, you know, I do like games and I do like money. I mean, as a game, I don't actually spend a lot of money. Of course, I have quite a nice lifestyle and I have houses. But, but you know, I don't drive a fancy car. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't go to expensive restaurants. I'm quite mean in many ways. Um, so yeah, money is important, but, but only for those reasons. And, you know, I mean, I, if, if the Sunday times, you know, came out this year, I hope that I would be higher than I was before. <laughs> and how have you made your money over the years, Richard? What will be the main areas? Investing in star businesses. Yeah. In the big, that, uh, the start came with Filofax, uh, which we made into another star business. The, the, 
in 2001, I made an investment in a company called Betfair, which was the first betting exchange. And that made me about 80 million pounds in, in you know, one single investment. There have been two investments I've made since then, which have carried me to whatever level I am now. But who knows, because those companies have not yet been sold. So, you know, and a, a profit until it's turned into cash isn't, is, you know, you can write numbers down on a piece of paper. But um, I'm very optimistic about those companies. One of them is doing exceptionally well at this, at this moment in time uh, and growing incredibly fast. Um, so uh, I'm hopeful, but, you know, if it all collapsed, I wouldn't worry too much, but I would have lost the game. <laughs> this podcast is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur, and I, I was really excited. I want to thank Oz Khan, because he um, connected us together. Um, what does that word disruptive mean to you? Doing things differently. What does it mean to you? What does it mean to me? Uh, it means challenging the normal. Yeah. Um, it means um, trying to find the way where you can have like a multiplier effect. Yeah. Um, it, it means to challenge yourself to, to not stay comfortable. Yeah. Um, it means to improve and innovate because sometimes people are disruptive for the sake of it, just to make a noise yeah. of a nuisance. And I'm not sure that that's necessary. Um, definitely to be different, to think different. Um, I, I remember reading 80-20 principle, which probably, Richard, you're probably um, part of what's created. You're part of the seed of what's created my journey because I think you explaining the 80-20 principle got me to think about the, the, the multiplier of the one most important thing, which maybe negates the other nine or 10 things that are trying to interrupt your day. Yeah. Hmm. So, well, I like disruptive. I think disruptive entrepreneur is another great phrase, alongside, of course, unreasonable success. Yes. <laughs> yes. And on that final note, Richard, I'd love, um, I've just bought the books of yours I don't have. So, I've just bought Star Principle on Audible. Um, I'm looking forward to unreasonable success. So, where can we follow you? Um, and what, you know, what piece of work or two would you, do you think we should start with of yours? I think if you haven't read the 8020 principle, it's still a great one to, to start with. I would say the star principle is very, if you're interested in making money anyway, the star principle is, uh, is the next one. If you're interested in being outstandingly successful, then buy Unreasonable Success, which is coming out on the 13th of August, <laughs> both in America and everywhere else in the world. So, so um, yeah. And follow me, please follow me on Twitter. Um, I am at... Richard Kosh 8020. And that's KOCH. That's KOCH, Richard Kosh, yes. Uh, uh, but 8020 as the numerals after my name. Yeah. And the website is um, richardkosh.net. I, I couldn't get the dot com, it was too expensive. Times <laughs> <laughs> rich, rich list 445 million. <laughs> No, I'm very mean. As I said, I don't. I don't actually. If you go to my website, you'll see videos of me and all this. It's quite. I think it's quite useful, but it's a terrible website. And technically, I need someone to to do it. But you see, I don't try and monetize all that sort of stuff. So um, maybe I should get someone to do that for me. But uh, 
in, in some ways I want people to to go to the website because they want to learn about me rather than because they want a great sort of you know, smooth running experience that's my rationalization of having a not very not very uh, friendly website but anyway persevere with it Richard it's um, been a pleasure I'm really grateful that you um, invested an hour and 10 minutes of your time and I want to say a big thank you Thank you, Rob. This is a great interview. Thank you. And thank you to all of your listeners and to the people who asked the questions. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you very much.